Glad again, once again, to be with you this morning. I certainly enjoyed our worship services last night, and trust God will be with us again and bless the preaching of his word to the honor and glory of his name. If you have your Bibles, you'd like to turn to the epistle of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'd like to begin reading there with verse 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not, that though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. <clears throat> for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. <clears throat> I'd like to title the message this morning in the form of a question based on verse 17. How can afflictions work for me? How can afflictions work for me? Paul says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us. Paul says, affliction is working for me. It is serving me. It is doing something for me. And did you know, beloved, that's exactly what God intends for you to do toward affliction today. Subduing it and looking at it in terms of what God speaks about in his word concerning afflictions. I may be speaking to someone this morning who's battling an affliction. You're battling a trial. There's something that's come into your life that you did not plan. Something that has come into your life that you did not anticipate. It's causing great pain and perhaps great sorrow. But could we not look at the Apostle Paul's afflictions and say that he had great sorrow at time and great pain? When I think about the fact that Paul said that his affliction was light and but a moment, and when I read about the afflictions of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, how he was shipwrecked three times, he was beaten thrice with 40 stripes save one, I suspect if you could have seen the back of the Apostle Paul, it would have been a ghastly sight. To be beaten that many times, and they fell short of that 40th lash because it would often take a man's life if they gave him that 40th lash on the back. Three times he was shipwrecked, beaten, in perils in the sea, which means danger, in perils of his countrymen. He was in dangers often, in fasting, in nakedness, in all sorts of perils said, beyond all that, I have the care of all the churches. <laughs> a, lot, a, lot of, uh, a lot going on in the Apostle Paul's life. But in all that, he could say, my affliction is light, and it's momentary. What was the key to the Apostle Paul's theology? It was where he looked. He said, it's only light, essentially here, and it's only moment while we look at something. We are looking at that which cannot be seen. Now, that is the most bizarre statement in the Bible, isn't it? Tell somebody, I'm really looking at something that you can't see. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense unless you understand what he's speaking of scripturally and by faith. By faith, we look at something that we cannot see because it is reality, it is truth, and it's centered in the glorious God of the Bible. Amen. And so the key 
for afflictions to work for us, the key is where we're looking. If we're not looking in the right place, rest assured they're not working to benefit us. They're not working in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The word weight in glory means heavyweight. It was working something for Paul as he looked towards something. He looked toward the mark, toward the goal, toward the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He could say affliction was light and momentary. But when he looked at something that was temporal, when he looked at the trial, when he looked at the circumstances, when he looked at the pain, I'm sure it was heavy if he did indeed look that way. And I'm sure it seemed very, very long. How is it with you this morning? Where are you looking this morning? It's often that we do tend to look at the circumstances. We get our eyes off of what God's Word says, and we get it on the circumstances and trials, as Peter did when he was walking upon the water. As long as Jesus said, Come, which was his Word, it was the Word of God spoken, Come, he came. But when he looked elsewhere at the temporal things, you know he had his eyes on the eternal God of the Bible, Jesus Christ. When he looked away from him and looked toward that which is temporal, he began to sink and he began to doubt. And Jesus said, O ye of little faith, why did you doubt? So the key is faith. Paul also gives us an image similar to this in Romans chapter 8 when he asked the question, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he poses several things. In Romans 8, in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, that word means no. See, we don't find comfort in saying the Christian is not exposed to tribulation, the Christian is not exposed to distress, the Christian is not exposed to famine, nakedness, peril, sword, killing. We only have to look at the book of the martyrs and see that Christians are indeed killed with the sword. We have to ask ourselves, are we separated from the love of Christ? Paul says, nay, in all these things, not outside of them, in them, in these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. See, when the Romans conquered, and I think Paul is using this image here, they didn't just go into a country and conquer and subdue the enemy. They had a parade in the streets of Rome, and it was called the Triumphant. They would go and subdue the enemy. That's a conqueror. But Paul says we're more than conquerors. The word is hypernikeo. Hyper means, you know the word, hyperactivity. Uh, Someone that goes over and beyond the the normal activity of a child, we say they're hyper. Paul says we're not just conquering. That that means to go in and subdue a country. We are hyper-conquerors. They would go into a country, subdue the enemy, and bring them back and make them serve their best interests. They would go to work for the Romans. The slaves would. Paul takes this vivid image and he says, we're more than conquerors in affliction, tribulation, distress, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. As we take those things and turn them so that they serve our best interest, which is a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. There are three things we need to look at to make this happen by faith. We first need to look at the covenant. Look at the covenant of grace. What has God told us in the covenant that would apply to afflictions in our life today. Look at Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah 31 and 32, we find that 
Jeremiah makes reference to the covenant in Jeremiah 31. He speaks of the covenant in terms of what would be new about the covenant in its administration versus the uh, Old Testament, saying he will put their laws in their minds and hearts, write them there, and he would be to them a God, they would be to him a people, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know him from the least to the greatest. The new covenant is about not just external teaching, it's about internal teaching, internal desires. And so he's not saying there's no teaching any longer. He's saying it was all external. Know the Lord, know the Lord. Now it's internal. They know the Lord from the inside, so they respond to the teaching on the outside. It's not that they didn't know the Lord in the Old Testament, but the administration of that covenant is changed by the coming of Jesus Christ and the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But let's look at the reference in Jeremiah 32, beginning in verse 37. He's speaking about judging the Babylonians after the captivity in verse 36, and then he says in 37, Behold, I will gather them out of all countries, whether I have driven them in mine anger and in my fury and in great wrath, and I will bring them again into this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, there's the covenant, that I will not turn away from them to do them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Yea, I will rejoice over them to do them good. Now that's covenant language, isn't it? Because he says, this is the everlasting covenant. First, I will be their God, they shall be my people. What does it mean to you when God says, I am your God? That is a possessive sentence, isn't it? God says, I am yours by divine grace. When my children speak to me and say, Dad, you know what that means for them? It means my strength, my money, my resources. All that I am as a person is going to work on their behalf for good. Do you know that's what God is saying to you? My wisdom... My sovereignty, my power, my omnipotence, my grace, my mercy is all now at work on your behalf. All because of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means furthermore that God is doing you good and he rejoices over you to do you good. You say, but preacher, you don't understand my situation. If I could tell you some of the things happening in my life, you would question the fact that God is doing me good. Now, God didn't say everything that happens to you is good. That is a major point, isn't it? Sometimes we look over those little words. I was talking to a man recently. He was talking to me about Daniel 4.35, where it says that God works his will among the armies of heaven and he inhabits the earth. He says, I know what God says is working his will, but everybody's not doing the will of God, so therefore that can't be what it means. You know what that verse says? It doesn't say everybody's doing God's will. It says God is working his will. There's a big difference in that. Yeah, many people are not doing his will as far as following the Bible, but God is working his sovereign providential will. And this covenant, brothers and sisters, says that he rejoices to do you good. It didn't say that all the circumstances are good that come into your life. Certainly they're not. There may be bad things happening in your life. There may be bad circumstances surrounding you at this very moment. But God says, I'm a God that rejoices to work over rule and do you good. Do you believe that? It's only by faith, when we look at God's Word and what it says, can we re rejoice in it. You remember the brother in 2 Kings chapter 6. The Syrians had had some problems with Israel. Every time they went to get Israel, it seemed that they knew their battle plans. And one man spoke up and said, it's that prophet Elisha. He knows what you're thinking in your bedchamber. 
We've got to get the prophet. So they go and surround the city where the prophet's house is, Elisha. I can just see the servant of Elisha waking up one morning with a cup of coffee, open the door and look out and spill coffee all over him. The mountains were covered with Assyrian soldiers. He said, alas, master, how should we do? Now, what was he looking at? Just the secondary things of life, the circumstances. I see soldiers. I see swords. Uh, we're history. But Elijah prayed and says, Lord, open his eyes. Then when he looked out again, he saw chariots of fire surrounding the soldiers. Now, both were real. Those soldiers were real, and that, those blades on those swords were real. But there was an objective truth that was also real, and that's the God of the universe. Beloved, we must put our faith in the objective truth of God's Word, no matter what experience says, no matter what opinion says, no matter what our circumstances say. If God says this is right, it is right, whether we can see it or not. I'm concerned about today in churches where people say, I just don't see it. You talk to them about a particular subject, and say, I just don't see it. Well, my Bible tells me we walk by faith and not by sight. So you may not be able to see it. You say, I don't see God doing me good. You may not see it, but you believe it because he says it. So somewhere in future, God is working toward a final end, and it may be the final day when Jesus comes back that you ever understand what God was doing. God is not giving us a running commentary on his providential will, is he? That's usually the things we want God to do. If we could identify what we would like God, uh, how we would like God to work on our behalf, we may say, well, I want him to work now. That's usually maybe the top of the list. I want him to follow my plan and not his. Uh, I don't want him to disrupt my plans, and I don't want him to bring, let any pain come into my life. That's usually how we want God to work. We look in the Bible, we say he, he's on a timetable. He follows his will. He executes that will. And it often means that there's going to be some pain that he'll suffer to come in the lives of his people. If the only holy son that ever lived had pain in his life for good, do you know that Jesus learned something through his pain? He experienced something. To make the captain of our salvation perfect through sufferings, he became complete as a man. He experienced something that he did not experience as God. He experienced death. He experienced pain. And he became perfect or mature, complete, by the things that he suffered. He learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Now, if God is going to use suffering in the life of a holy son, do you think he's not going to use suffering in the life of sinful sons and daughters? He will. But he rejoices. This is the covenant. He rejoices over you to do you good. Isaiah 62 says this. He rejoiceth over you as a bridegroom rejoiceth over a bride. Now, you husbands here... I don't need to go too far with that illustration. You remember your wedding day. Now, I hope it was something you were rejoicing in and you, you were excited about it. But when you saw your wife come down the aisle, wife-to-be, what kind of rejoicing were you having? You were excited. You were thrilled. You were committed. You looked forward to it. God is using that image about himself. He says, I rejoice over my people as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. So that's hard to believe, but that's what grace is all about, isn't it? God rejoices to do you good. And so as we trust that God is working among the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth, he's overruling, he's working to a final end, we will trust and wait upon God and recognize that the covenant says, whether I can see it or not, God's covenant says he rejoices to do me good and he's working good and he never works evil. See, we've got to take our definitions of what good and what love is and make sure they correspond with the Bible, don't we? How many people correctly define love in our world today? 
They say love is if God gives me a big house, a great car, a good job, making good money. See, we, we slide the word good in there. What are we doing? We're defining good in our terms, human terms. Good money, good job. Well, what's a bad job and bad money? <laughs> you see, God doesn't use your definitions and my definitions of good, nor of love. Listen to Jesus in John chapter 11. Remember, Lazarus of Bethany was sick, nigh unto death. He says Jesus loved him. Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha, his sisters. And they knew that Jesus could heal him. So they sent message to Jesus, and he got the message. He heard that Lazarus was die, uh, uh, nigh unto death, rather. He was sick. And then Jesus says, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. For the glory of God. And the next verse says this. After he had heard, therefore, it says that he loved Lazarus, then it says, therefore, he abode where he was for two days. Now, is that love? To hear that someone is about to die and you've got the power to heal them and to stay where you are for two days? Listen to Jesus Radical definition of love. He says, I wait because I love them. And I let him die because I love him. Because I want the glory of God to be seen. What happened after Lazarus' death? He calls him out of the grave. He comes forth with great power. And many of the Jews that came to comfort Mary believed. What was Jesus working towards? The glory of his Father. Beloved, God's providence, his covenant, is working toward the glory of his exalted name. And we must define love and good in terms of what God defines it. You say, this is not good to let this happen in my life. God says, if it brings you closer to me, it is good in the final outcome. Remember, it's not that the event is good. It's not that my pain is good. God is not rejoicing to give you pain. He's rejoicing to do you good. And that's something that comes out of the effects of the trials that we encounter in life. So we must look at the covenant. Notice further, into that covenant language in Jeremiah 32, he says, Yeah, I will rejoice over them, verse 41, to do them good, and I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. You know, when you and I take on a task, we may use terminology like that and say, I'm going to put my whole, per I'll give it everything I've got. You may have told your boss one time, boss, I'm not sure I can do this, but I'll just give it everything I've got. And maybe you were on a job interview and you said, I will give this company all that I am, everything I've got. Now, if God does that, I will rejoice over them to do them good. I will surely plant them in this land with my whole heart and my whole soul. That's all that God is. All of that power, wisdom, and everything that he is, is for you. Why is that? It's because he gave Jesus as a covenant for the people. He is the covenant for the elect, isn't he? Listen to Romans chapter 8 and about the 31st and 2nd verse. He says, if God be for us, who can be against us? Again, God is for us. That doesn't mean that God is standing on the sidelines saying, I'm for you, brother. I hope everything works out. No, he is for you. He is on your side. David says in Psalm 118, The Lord is on my side. Whom shall I fear? I was on the basketball court getting ready to take on Jamie Tucker and Michael Jordan walks up and says, I'm on your side. <laughs> you are out of here, Brother Jamie. <laughs> I cannot lose. <laughs> right? What if God walks up and he says, I'm on your side. David says, What am I afraid of? What am I afraid of? See, it's only as you look 
to the God that's on your side and you follow his wisdom and his plan. God has a plan. Isn't it unthinkable that we should be planning people? We plan. This is right. We think it's uh, horrible for a person not to do some kind of planning. Are we going to attribute that to God? We're made in his image. We're planners because God is a planner. And he's planned his work. He knows what he's going to do. He knows what his providential work will be. And he is the one that executes that according to that precision wisdom by which he works things together in this universe we live in. And then the remainder of that passage in Romans 8, God before us, who can be against us? Why is God for us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? He's arguing from the greater to the lesser, isn't he? The reason that God is for you is because God did not spare his son. What father here would spare their son from death? Furthermore, what father here would not spare their son from spitting, ridicule, beatings, mockery, rejection, and knowing that your son is innocent? What father would not spare their son? You'd say, well, certainly no good father would let that happen to their son. Really? What about your good heavenly father? Was God delighting in putting his son through that pain? Did he just delight as some backyard bully to say, boy, I'm just going to have fun for my son to go through this pain? No, it was the outcome, beloved. It's always the outcome. Isaiah 53 says it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Who killed Jesus Christ? God killed him. Ultimately, didn't he? He would have never gone to that cross had it not been the plan of that covenant to send him there. He sent his own son to be a propitiation. He sent him. God sent him. Yes, God was providentially working, and there were mans that took him, men that took him and, and slew him, and they were responsible and accountable. But God was working around in that scene to bring about his will, the death of his son, which is your redemption. And that's good, isn't it? So a good God sent his good son to die on Calvary. For what reason, does Paul tell us? He that delivered his, spared not his own son, delivered him up for us all. How shall he not freely give us all things? The greater the lesser. Now, I think it stands to reason we don't have to say that God gives us sin. He does not give us sin, so we can exclude that and perish the thought that anybody would think all things means that God is giving you sin. That's contradictory to the Bible. But God is overruling and turning setbacks and disappointments and working them out for good, isn't he? Why would he do such a thing? He rejoices to do it because he would not spare his son. Beloved, when you see your afflictions... And all the pain you're going through and ask why, look at the cross of Jesus Christ and say, if God would not spare his son, which is the worst crime, the worst sin that could ever occur, if we could put it that way, the death of the Holy Son of God, then certainly will not God take all these lesser things and be your God and work on your behalf? Look to him, trust him. It's because we must look at the covenant, what it means. It means more than just a home in heaven. It means God is working right now today. Jesus Christ purchased for you the sovereign activity of God on your behalf all the days of your life. Isn't that what David says in Psalm 23? He says, surely uh, he leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's why he's leading, it's for his name. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Right, and his rod and his staff, they comfort me. Now, Jesus is leading, but wait a minute, he's leading through the valley because he knows 
or rather, he does know what awaits us in the valley, because that's why his rod and his staff is there. The staff is for rescue because of the predators that were waiting along the mountainside as they took the sheep up the mountains to get to the grasslands, the grasslands where the waters, pure, had fallen, and there's rich, luxurious pasture lands on top of the mountain. The shepherd, the good shepherd, is willing to take his sheep through the valley to get them to the top where the good grass resides. You see the image there. He's leading, but he leads through valleys, but he's got his rod, he's got his staff. They comfort me because sheep wander, they go astray, so the rod is to chasten, to bring them back. He's leading, he's guiding, but he's going right through the valley. Do we trust the shepherd that he knows what he's doing when he lets afflictions come into our life and trials and tribulation? Do we trust him as David, a shepherd himself, was looking at Jesus Christ as the great shepherd? And what does he say at the end of that psalm? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Every day God has mercy and goodness in mind for you. He says, wait on my plan and trust me. Look to the covenant of grace that says God rejoices over you to do you good. Secondly, look at God's providence. And we've already been speaking to some degree about that. God's providence is what undergirds that covenant. God is working to this final end, the glorification of his name, and the redemption or the bodily resurrection of the saints, the final judgment where God will come back, Jesus Christ, he will right all wrongs. He will reveal himself and his glory, and there he will take his people to be with him forever. We're to be looking toward that day, but as we do, we're to see that God's providence is working toward that end. He's working in such a way to continue to call the heirs of grace out of darkness into his marvelous light. He even kept you alive to the day that he could call you. You ever thought about that? Imagine God saying, well, that person died before I could quicken them. <laughs> what, what's going to happen now? I've got to retool my plan. No, he's providentially working in such a way to preserve you, even physically alive, to the day that he could call you. And he's going to call every heir of grace before they reach the shores of heaven. We're to look to his providence. Consider Isaiah 64 quickly. Many places we could go in the Bible concerning this, but Isaiah is going to speak about the God who's providentially working. In Isaiah 64, they're asking God to come down. They had asked God in Isaiah 63 to look down. Now they ask God to come down providentially and work. They had enemies. There were those that were against them. It was the Babylonians. They were in captivity. And they're saying, God, come down, deliver, make yourself known. Verse 3, when thou didst terrible things which we looked not for, thou camest down, the mountains flowed down in thy presence. Verse 3, rather, verse 4 now. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. God is going to tell his people in Babylonian captivity, wait for my providence, look for my providence. What did God said? It will be 70 years that shall be accomplished before the captivity is over. Watch and wait. I'm a God at work. He says, no God has ever been seen like this that prepares for him. The word prepare means to fashion, accomplish, or work. What was Paul depending on in 2 Corinthians 4? He was depending on God to work in such a way that Paul could look at the afflictions in such a way that they were benefiting Paul. He could say with David, I know that in faithfulness thou hast afflicted me. And he speaks in that Psalm 119 as God being good in afflicting. Why? Because God is good when he maintains his purpose of showing his mercy to his people and drawing them closer 
to him through the trials that they experience. Isaiah says there's no God like this that does what? Prepares for him or works for him that waits for him. Have you ever had anybody work for you? Maybe you've hired someone around the home. We usually want a recommendation when we get someone to work for us. Somebody's going to do a job around home. We ask, how is this person's work? Sometimes you hear, I wouldn't get that person to do that job. They're going to identify some deficiencies in the person's work. They didn't complete the job. They didn't know how to do the job. I've heard people say he didn't know what he was doing. You ever experienced that? He didn't have any idea what he was doing. He did a terrible job. Lack of strength, lack of power, lack of management skills. He had a labor, but he couldn't tell them what to do. He couldn't manage the business. Lack of wisdom, lack of knowledge. But when God works for you, that is, when he's providentially work on your behalf, can you say that he's really deficient in anything? You say, well, you know, if God had really known what was going to happen, I suppose he would have done something different. <laughs> he knows the end from the beginning, Isaiah 46. In from the beginning. Say, so, well, if he had enough strength. You know, I, I know God saw what was going to happen to me, but if he could have had enough strength to stop it, I believe he would have. Listen to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. He says, have you not heard, O Jacob? Has it not been told you that the God, the creators of the heavens and the earth, does not faint, does not become weary? His understanding is unsearchable. Now that verse just is difficult to grasp. God's understanding is infinity. It never has an end. Somebody says sometimes, well, when we get to heaven, we're going to know all there is to know about God. Wrong. <laughs> you will never in all eternity know everything to know about God because he's infinite. And if you're finite and he's infinite, you will never get to the end of God. All eternity will be spent God pouring out more knowledge about himself. His understanding is infinite. It goes on, it is innumerable. It's not that God lacks the, the wisdom. Does he lack the power? He doesn't faint, he's not weary. Do you know that an indication of your creatureliness before God and your weakness before God is that you have to sleep? God has been existing from ages to ages and he's never taken a nap. Not on Sunday afternoon, not even Sunday morning. He does not nap. An indication that he's full of strength and power. Beloved, when we think about the knowledge of God and learning about God, we are standing on the seashore making sandcastles as we look out over the abyss and the depths of the ocean. We are playing in the shallow end of the water. We are yet to dive in the middle of the depths of an infinite ocean that has no end. God's understanding is infinite. He's working providentially. As we look to his providential hand, we could say, I don't know what God is doing here. You know, that's really what defines a trial, isn't it? A trial is when you don't know what God is doing. That's what makes it a trial. I don't have a clue why this is happening to me. Now, if you've sinned, you do have a clue, and God says, repent. But when there are things coming into your life that you have no control over, God says, wait for me. Wait. I'm working. I'm doing some things here. I'm carrying. This God that's so unique in Isaiah 64, 64, 4, concerning his providence, is a God that carries you. Isaiah 46 says it this way. He says, compare me to Baal and Nebo, the gods of the Babylonians. He says, Baal boweth down, Nebo stoopeth. 